Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Kevin Potter, Chief Operating Officer at Heritage Bank. It's great to have you along today. I really enjoyed my conversation with Kevin. I find it fascinating to talk to people in their first 90 days of uh, employment in a new role, and he had literally been COO at Heritage for 90 days when we spoke. It was fascinating to get his insights into leadership and gender diversity. He's a very well-educated person, having done a number of the top management courses in the world. But before I introduce Kevin to you properly, let me introduce myself for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you in any recruitment requirements for your leadership team, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Let me now introduce to you, Kevin. Kevin Potter was born in Melbourne, Australia. However, he now lives in Toowoomba in Queensland. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Heritage Bank. Heritage Bank is Australia's largest customer-owned bank with over 140 years of history. Kevin has completed a Bachelor of Arts and a Graduate Diploma in Business and has also attended the Advanced Management Program at Harvard University and the Avira program at INSEAD. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Kevin Potter. Okay, so we're rolling. Well, Kevin, welcome to the Arate Podcast. Fantastic to have you along today on what is a very rainy and gloomy uh, (laughs) Brisbane afternoon. But uh, we don't get these rainy days very often, so it's nice to have a bit of variety. Certainly, you... certainly gloomy out there. <laughs> How's your uh, day been going so far? Oh, my day's great. So drove down from Toowoomba. Right. And always a great opportunity when you're in the car to either make phone calls or right. to reflect on, uh-huh. on what's happening. And so was today a phone call day or a reflection day? A little of both. Okay. Well, um, I'm interested in uh, understanding a little bit more about your current professional responsibilities firstly. So tell us about that. Sure. So I am with Heritage Bank. I'm the Chief Operating Officer, which picks up responsibility for, I guess, what people would define as back office activities. Yeah. And the back office activities comprise what people would generally classify as a normal operation. So cards, payments, term deposits, deceased estates, and those typical kind of areas. Right as well as collections, and also have responsibility for the first-line credit function. Okay, okay. And um, you've been in the role for pretty much on three months now. Yeah, in fact, I th- three months today. There Is you go. Is that right? Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I always find it fascinating to talk to people who are in that sort of first 90 days. So um, we'll get into talking more about your role uh, a little later in the conversation, but three months in, is it as you expected? Yeah, look, it's a it's a wonderful organisation. It has a, a great culture. It is is very well led by the senior executive team, the CEO and the board. 
we're all very engaged in the business. Uh, the organisation, generally speaking, is, is very well connected back into the community and really does live and breathe the people first ethos and culture. Great. And for those people who are unfamiliar with Heritage Bank, uh, tell us a little bit about the bank. Yeah, so it's it's Australia's largest customer-owned bank, and it, it's been going essentially since uh, 1872, so 145 years. Uh-huh. So it has a very rich and uh, deep history and tradition. Right. And um, not being a banking guy myself, just explain the difference between a customer-owned bank and what we would understand you know, one of the big four banks to be. Yeah, so look, in essence, the difference is if you're a big four bank, you issue shares, there are people who own shares in the company and therefore are part owners in the company. Uh-huh. A mutual bank doesn't have that. A mutual bank has members and the members effectively, when they open accounts, become owners of the bank. Right. So depending on how much money I have on deposit with you at any one time is essentially my shareholding. No, it's more, it's more it's regardless of what the, the value of your holding is, okay. it's, it's the same. Okay, great. Fantastic. Yeah. And from a cultural point of view, having moved from you know, a different bank into this one, is there some really tangible differences internally that you've noticed? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most obvious ones is given the different size of organisations, it's a lot flatter. Okay. So the ability to get things done uh, at a faster pace is certainly greater at an organisation like like Heritage. The CEO certainly makes himself highly available and accessible, and therefore able to get things done quick, quickly. Right. Oh, that's excellent. Well, uh, let's uh, come back and talk a bit more about Heritage uh, a bit later, but why don't we go back and, you know, talk about your early life. Tell sure. us about where you were born and mum, dad, brothers and sisters and growing up and sure. so on. So I was born in uh, West Melbourne, so okay. essentially born and bred other than some years in the US and also now in, in Queensland, basically mm-hmm. born and bred in Melbourne. So I have never met my father. So my father left when I was only days old. Okay. So was therefore brought up by an amazing woman, my mother, who yeah. was both mother, father, and best friend for probably the first fifteen years of my life. Okay. And Were you also an only have, child. And I also have a brother who's four years older. Right. Okay. So your yeah, mum has played an incredibly important and powerful role in my life. Mm-hmm. But also, I've been surrounded by some other amazing females, as it turns out. So my mother, unfortunately, lost her own mother when she was only 11. So Uh she was, in turn, brought up by her auntie. Mm -hmm. Her auntie, in turn, had four four daughters. Okay. So therefore, I've basically spent the first 15 years of my life around six women. Right. And how do you six think very that... very strong, powerful women. Oh, and how has that uh, impacted your sort of view of the world as an adult, do you think? Oh, it's had a profound impact on me. So I, I believe uh, very deeply about gender and, and gender equality. So I also now have a daughter, so there's an even more reason to okay. feel that way. But look, I just think that when you stand back and you look at it for for so many reasons, the right thing to do is to have gender equality. So Mm -hmm. I think there's certainly a a moral compass that should be applied. But I think even if you don't accept that, if you look at the way organisations perform, you look at all the research that's been done, the performance is much greater when you you have that balance. Okay. And uh, was your mum working while you were growing up? 
Mum worked two and three jobs. Right. So, yeah, and I, and I, I have to confess, I, I was a terrible sleeper until I was about the age of four. So <laughs> I slept very little and poor right. mum uh, was working multiple jobs and okay. surviving on very little sleep for a long uh, period. So you're uh, looking after her well in her uh, retirement yes, years? Yes, she's in Melbourne now, so right. I, I do get down there as much as I can. Okay, great. And your brother, four years older than you, I imagine he at least would have some memory of his father. Uh, yeah, not look. To be quite frank, we, we've never actually spoken about it. Right. So it's not something that that we we've dwelt upon. An interesting thing is my father's mother. We were incredibly close to and saw her every week. Okay. But again, there was never any conversation about right. him. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And so, um, uh, growing up in Melbourne, no doubt you had a particular. Uh, uh, team that you supported, oh, like I all Melbourne people do. Did indeed. Now, I, as I said earlier, I was born in West Melbourne, which right. is, I would think, about two kilometres from uh, the team I support, North Melbourne. Uh-huh. So, yes, uh, a fourth generation North Melbourne supporter. Okay. There was never any doubt or debate to be right. had about that. Uh-huh. And in turn, the same thing transpired with my own daughter. My, my, my daughter barracks for North Melbourne as okay. well. Okay, and uh, I don't follow, but how are they going this year? Uh, very much a, a year of transition, a lot right. of rebuilding. Right. There are a number of experienced players that left okay. last year, so we're now bringing a much younger group through. Right, so that's basically, they're not doing so good. Not doing so well, <laughs> yeah. That's a very good summary, actually. Yeah. And, and so when you are at school, uh, you know, what did you think at that time you wanted to do when you grew up? I always had this dream. I, I really didn't have a particular occupation, but I always envisaged myself carrying a briefcase for some, I don't know why, but okay. for some reason. Right. At a young age, I always envisaged myself doing that. And it wasn't until I was, I was much older that uh, what I wanted to do became clear. My first job out of university was as a business reporter. I worked for Dun & Bradstreet. Right, because you did a Bachelor of Arts, didn't you? I did. You? Yeah. And uh, journalism was your thing there? Or? No, no. So, no, I, I, I majored in... You know, I didn't major in anything. I was just arts, just a general right. kind of uh, degree. So yeah. uh, I went straight out of that into Dun & Bradstreet. As I yeah. said, I only worked there for a short period. Right. And then I'd actually done a little while prior to joining Dun, Dun & Bradstreet a, a football administration okay. course with yeah. what was then known as the VFL, which is now the AFL. Yeah. So I did that program and uh, unbelievably was offered a role at North Melbourne. Okay. So the, the, the club I'd supported for... For many years, and my wow. family supported for so long, and yeah, the next moment I'm actually working at the football club. Okay, and what's the role were you doing there? So I was a team manager and development manager. And what does that mean? So basically, I, I was working in particular with the young recruits coming through, people okay. who were settling in from either country yeah. or interstate, and my role was basically to work with them to integrate. So. Right. To, to help them to find employment, yep. education, housing, and okay. basically just to ensure that they, they transition smoothly. Yeah, keep them on the rails. That was the plan. Right, okay. And how long did you do that for? So I did that part-time for, would have been four years, and okay. then, I, then I worked there full-time yep. for, would have been about 18 months okay. as well. All right. And then what um, happened from there? Uh, what happened was I, I then met the person who is now my wife, and right. I... Life I guess, took a different direction. Started to think more about what I wanted to do longer term, and I'd always had an interest in in banking and finance. Why? Because I, I think that banks have such a profound influence on on communities generally mm-hmm. and the economy more broadly. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always fascinated at, at how 
that worked. And as a result of that, I, I applied for and was successful in getting a role as a graduate trainee with ANZ. Okay. And uh, what sort of year are we talking about now? Gee, you're really testing my memory now. That would have been back in 80, would have been about 87. Okay. And you worked with ANZ for a while? So I worked with ANZ for almost seven years. Okay. Great experience. I would have done in that time about six roles. Right. So almost every 12 months there was something new. Always in Melbourne? Always in Melbourne okay. with ANZ, yeah. And while you were doing that, you also went back to uni and did your um, grad diploma in business. I did, yeah. Right. So I did okay. graduate diploma in business at, at Monash, which gives me a whole new appreciation for people who are working and studying at the same time. Right. Because I was working long hours and then had to had to commute quite a long distance mm-hmm. to study. So mm-hmm. that was it was tough but incredibly rewarding. Met some amazing people right. and learned a great deal. Okay. And what was the uh, the more senior of the roles that you worked at ANZ then? So I guess the most senior role would have been I, I managed my own lending portfolio. Uh-huh. So I had a portfolio of customers and I, I managed the, basically the relationship. I was the interface between between them and the bank, if you right. like. Right. And they were uh, mum and dad customers or business customers? Well, to start with, they were they were mum and dads. Then yeah. that morphed into business customers and actually then morphed ultimately into large property owning companies. Okay. okay. So that was the last, last role I did with ANZ. Right. And so what uh, uh, stimulated your desire to move on from the ANZ then? So I got to know a number of people by virtue of particularly studying mm-hmm. and I just got talking to a number of those people. There was an opportunity at National Australia Bank yep. and one thing led to another and I ended up taking a role with National Australia Bank. Okay, and you were with them for quite some time. Yeah, I was with them for more or less 20 years. Right, and uh, how did you find NAB at the time in comparison to ANZ? Was it just more of the same or was it quite a different beast? Uh, it was very different. I mean, NAB had a, an incredibly strong reputation at that time, particularly in relation to its its culture and, and more particularly in regard to its credit culture. Okay. It was seen very much as a, as a pillar in the banking community around the way in which it had, had managed to navigate its way through very challenging times. Right. In what respect? Oh, it just had a, had a very strong ethos around risk and risk management and, and credit. So there was a, a function that was known as the Credit Bureau. Right. And basically that was... That was the, the the ultimate authority in many respects around lending transactions. So okay. when there was a transaction that was that was that was requested, that was a large transaction, mm-hmm. it would typically be be answered there. And if it couldn't be done there, then it would it would then pass through a number of different committees. But for the bulk of transactions, the decisioning was made in in those credit bureaus. Right. And your own career seems to have moved strongly into that space of credit risk itself. Yeah, it's interesting because when I when I joined NAB, the intention was that I would go on an orientation program, which is a great program actually. So you go and you go into the bank at that time, and and you're exposed to a range of different areas. Mm-hmm. One of which for me at the time was credit bureau, which I've just talked about briefly. And what and would that have been over a twelve or a month period or something like that? Uh, it was more over a six month period. Okay, yeah. But part of that was exposure to credit bureau, and what happened was I did a stint there. There was a vacancy there. I was I was asked whether I would 
uh, be prepared to do a role there, which I was. I mm-hmm. thought, well, what a great opportunity mm-hmm. to work in an organisation. If I was going to be a relationship manager, a great way to understand what I would need to do to be successful by working in credit bureau. Okay. And then one thing led to another and manifested itself in probably 12 or 13 other risk roles over a long period of time. So what do you think it was about you know, that particular function that you know, kept you engaged in that area of the bank for such a long period? I think one of the, the issues was there was just so much change. So every year I was doing a different job. Yep. And in many respects, each of those roles were were largely Greenfield's roles. So they were roles that largely hadn't existed before in okay. many respects. So it was really an opportunity to create and design. Right. And was it external conditions that were driving the need to create these roles or was it more of an internally led um, uh, business imperative? It was a bit of both. Okay. So certainly economic industry conditions had an impact, but there was also very much uh, an internal drive to to change the way the business has been done. So an ongoing drive to, to create a different business model, in particular the way that impaired assets were being managed. So NAB had a very strong view around the best way of managing those assets, which basically meant that it wanted to recognise those at the early signs of distress. So what would be an example of an impaired asset then? Oh, it may be a company that has, for example, lost a, a significant contract which okay. impacts cash flow and profit. Yeah. And it's clear the company is a, is a strong company, but it's mm-hmm. just going to go through a, a, a challenging period. So the role of that team was to work with that company, basically to get that company rehabilitated back on its feet. And keep it out of administration. And keep it out of administration and keep it right. with the bank. Yeah. So the, the goal was very much, hey, do whatever you can to work with, with these people to make sure that, that they come through the other side mm-hmm. and that they remain a customer for many years to come. Mm-hmm. I imagine you must have seen some very uh, interesting circumstances uh, involved in these businesses getting to that point. Um, and so uh, was were you leading the team that would go in and advise and support or were you actually at the coalface? So look, a bit of both. So initially I was, I, I had a, a, again a portfolio of those customers that had exhibited those early signs of distress so I was managing those myself but over a period of time that morphed into leadership role so in fact my my first real leadership role in terms of the impaired asset side was in Michigan so National Australia Bank at the time owned a bank in Michigan uh-huh. Michigan National Bank so I went across to the US to to manage that team of people who were who okay. were dealing with those customers at the first sign of distress. Right, and how long were you in the US for? Nearly three years. Okay, and is it at that time that you went into the advanced management program at Harvard? No, I, I wish I had done it then, but no, it was much later. Right, so that was, okay. Uh, that was actually while I was the state general manager for business banking in Victoria and Tasmania for uh-huh. NAB. Which again was a bit of a segue back into you know, Australia and back into quite a different role for you within the bank, having had, you know, very much a, a risk orientation to go into more of a general management role. What uh, led to that? Uh, it was a number of things, but I think most particularly, so this happened at the time that Australia was in the midst of the, the GFC and NAB took the view that given the challenging environment and circumstances it was facing, the right thing to do was to put people into into those frontline roles mm-hmm. who had risk experience. Okay. And having had that experience, yeah. I was one of the people that was put into those roles. Right. Okay. So it was basically to help 
help the bank, help customers to navigate their way through the, the GFC. And so you'd already returned back from the US pre-GFC? Yes, I had. Right, because yeah. I imagine the scene in Australia would have been very, very different to what they would have experienced in the US. Yeah, I, I maintained close contact with a number of people in the US, and yes, you're absolutely right. It was it was really chalk and cheese. It was day mm-hmm. and night. It was, the, the, I guess the, the way it manifested itself in Australia versus the US was very different. Mm-hmm. And largely around this uh, home, loaning envi- uh, uh, home loan environment that really sort of uh, put a lot of uh, pressure on the US um, financial system or other things as well? Yeah, no, I think that that's predominantly the impact. Now, when I said that there was a vastly different experience, that said, I mean, Australia was also caught up you know, in the whole situation to the extent that the banks were, were heavily reliant Mm-hmm. On, on raising wholesale debt and the wholesale debt was being provided largely by overseas parties. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the US in particular was experiencing this at, a, at a, I guess, a deeper level in Australia still meant that there was definitely an impact on Australia because of this requirement, this need mm-hmm. for Australia to, to raise money to mm-hmm. fund itself, which has since meant that the banks now manage themselves and fund themselves very differently. Mm-hmm. And... Uh Working in the U.S. for three years, you know, I, I always find it interesting to talk about the sort of the business cultural differences between working in Australia versus in the U.S. What would you say are some of the similarities and some of the glaring differences? I think, in terms of the similarities, I think that work ethic is very similar from my perspective. Mm-hmm. I found that the the degree to which people were incredibly focused on on working hard wanting to do a good job i think that was the same in both markets i think one of the big differences was that the 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 whole legislative regime was very different in the u.s versus the australian market so Mm -hmm. You know, people often refer to things such as jingle mail where you know, a customer borrows money, doesn't work out in the US and they post the keys back to the bank right. because there's not that kind of follow through implication into bankruptcy that, sure. you, that you would have here. So yeah. that therefore led to a very different approach to the way that you had to engage with with both individuals mm-hmm. and, and companies. So. The whole insolvency regime was very different, which therefore meant that the approach you needed to take had had to be tailored accordingly. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that expression before, Jingle yeah. Bell, but uh, it uh, oh, yeah. paints the picture nicely, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And so uh, you came back to Australia. Um, uh, you're then uh, working state general manager for NAB Business and at that time went to Harvard. Is that the eight-week residential program that you did? Yeah, it was. At the time, uh, it's it's morphed a bit, but... At the time, it would have been a it would have been more like a ten or twelve week program. Okay, and an incredible experience. Yeah. Uh, in many respects, a life changing experience. Mm-hmm. I've had a number of people on the podcast who have done that program, including a very good friend of mine, Martin Moore, the CEO of CS Energy, and certainly everybody I know who's done that has felt that it's just been a life transforming opportunity, and it's created an amazing global network of people and uh, and certainly done a lot to enhance individuals' careers. How, how important has it been for you? Oh, it's, look, it's been pivotal for me. I mean, there is so much that we learnt while we were there, and but there are a couple of things that I really took out of it that, that changed the way I thought about leadership and, and, and I guess the world more broadly, to, okay. be, to be frank. What's like what? 
Well, the first one was this concept of psych- psychological safety. Okay. So, yeah, there's a professor at Harvard, Amy Edmondson, who's very much a leading authority around the world on this concept of psychological safety, which is about creating an environment where people feel safe to, to be themselves. Mm-hmm. So safe, safe to question, safe to challenge. And, you know, the thinking there is that if, if you can put a team in that position, then you're in a much stronger position to make the right decisions. Okay. And there are a number of incredible case studies that we, we went through to, to show the lessons uh, around the importance of psychological safety or the Mount Everest tragedy. Um, there are also uh, a range of other other case studies that we looked at, but that, that one in particular really stood out around that psychological safety not being created and therefore when people had concerns, they, they weren't speaking up. And you know, in, unfortunately in that particular case, that led mm. to a very tragic sure. outcome. Wow. And so at a practical level, how do you implement that within your own business? I Look, I... I spend a, a lot of time and I underline a lot of time um, just reaching out to people mm-hmm. connecting to people making myself available being accessible mm-hmm. and really connecting with people to, to understand who they are and what they're about and, okay. and what's important to them and just making it really clear to people. I don't profess to have all the answers. I think the world is way too complex mm-hmm. a place for any one person to have those answers. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's a lot of uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. So you need all the all the brains engaged to come up with the right answer. And, and the right approach is for everyone to put their opinion forward and I think by virtue of that, you, you reach the right decision. Now, a decision has to be made ultimately, but the process that you go through is incredibly important to get mm-hmm. to this decision. Mm-hmm. And so would people in your team overtly understand that that is an important leadership principle or framework that you work to? Or is it more just part of the way you generally do business uh, and they wouldn't understand that you're specifically you know, um, keeping uh, a close consideration of this psychological safety? No, look, I'm very overt in terms of the importance of this as a concept. Uh, Again, because I think there's just so many examples, history is littered with examples Mm -hmm. where it it hasn't been done well. And Mm -hmm. as I said, with Mount Everest as as a classic case, the ramifications can be extreme if it's it's not a part of of your team. Sure. And you said there were two key learnings out of Harvard. Mm. What was the other one? The other big one for me was the concept of of congruence. And again, there was a professor at Harvard, Mike Tushman, and he spoke about the need for congruence in in what organisations do, which, which basically means that you've got to make sure that there's alignment between the strategy that you're following your formal organisational structure, your informal organisational structure, the resources that you have, mm-hmm. because if all of those things aren't aligned, then you're not going to be as successful as you might otherwise be. And look, it sounds like a simple concept, but mm. it, it's something that I've certainly followed at a very deep level since I went to Harvard. Wow, that's interesting. I imagine if we'd gone into a bank 20 years ago and talked about these sort of concepts, they would have been completely foreign to the entire culture and orientation around how leadership within a banking environment works. Are you finding that you know your peers uh, at a senior executive level are also 
uh, taking heed and implementing these strategies as well? Yeah, definitely. I think the world is moving at such an incredible pace that people acknowledge that the only way to succeed is to engage as many people as you can to solve problems. And I think there's a much greater recognition that what's important is to spend time actually putting the right process in place because mm-hmm. by having the right process, you'll get the right right mm-hmm. decisions. And that means having diversity, and it goes back to what I said earlier about gender diversity as, as one aspect of that, but diversity more broadly to make sure that you're getting all the different perspectives put on mm-hmm. the table. Mm-hmm. And so not long after returning from Harvard, it appears that you moved into this next generation program. So tell us a bit about that. That was a banking platform replacement that National Australia Bank was was working on at the time. So basically to replace their yeah their, their core banking platform. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And and so what was your role in there? So I was leading the team that was that was basically designing what that would look like from the perspective of business banking, wholesale banking, and wealth management. Right. So again, quite a substantive shift for you in terms of the focus of your work. What do you think it was about your um, your own personal competencies that had enabled you to, you know, move from you know a strong risk exposure to a general management leadership exposure now into, you know, delivering a you know a, a massive change program? How what was it that enabled you to be that adaptable and flexible? I think more than anything else, it's it's curiosity. So okay. it's an acknowledgement that you don't know all there is that. There, there is to know and you've got a thirst or a desire to learn right. and I, I certainly feel that there's so much I still need to learn so they have a very curious bent so I have an open mind and as a result of that I think that enables me to embrace change mm-hmm. differently to the way other people would. Mm-hmm. And then after that program completed after about 18 months one more role in the NAB and then uh, off to Suncorp. Off to Suncorp, yeah. So I took a role with Suncorp, which again, interestingly enough, was a green Greenfields role. It was, was that your first role in Brisbane? Yes, it was. Okay. Yep. So I moved to Brisbane for right. that role. And it was the Executive General Manager Group Financial Risk, which was basically about putting in, in place frameworks so that Suncorp could understand what it what its overall exposure across the group that is yeah was a, across a range of different dimensions so dimensions such as market risk and counterparty risk up until that point it had been looked at pretty much along business lines but mm-hmm. there was a recognition particularly with change in prudential standards that there needed to be a conglomerate wide approach taken so mm-hmm. it was important to to be able to wrap your mind around what was that risk looked at across the whole organisation rather than just within a line of business. Right. And what was it about, you know, Suncorp outside of just a specific role that uh, attracted you? I mean, you've been with NAB for a long time. You know, what, what motivated you to, to want to not only change uh, cities but uh, to change uh, employers? There were a couple of things. So I, I knew a number of people who had worked at NAB who were with Suncorp. So I got to understand a lot about Suncorp and uh, about... Its culture in particular and, and, and its leadership. And, and I took the view that if I was going to change roles, then it actually made sense to change location as well. So if I was going right. to go through change, I might as well go through change at a much sure. grander scale. 
Well, you sound like somebody who like who really embraces change, as you said, that curiosity. Yeah. Uh, so up you come uh, uh, up to uh, Queensland, and then not long after that, you're back in a risk role again. Yeah. So <laughs> that uh, that was that was interesting. So I'd been in the role, I guess, at the time for probably only eight or ten weeks, mm-hmm. and then the incumbent chief risk officer was going on on an extended break and she'd worked her backside off for a really long period of time managing what Suncorp had in in terms of the rump of non-core assets Mm -hmm. that it had acquired over a period of time and the person in question that had as I said worked her backside off and needed to take a a break just to to regenerate and reignite so uh, when she shared with Suncorp that's what she wanted to do I was then approached to go and sit in the role during that extended break the person in question then came back from from leave and decided that she wanted to pursue non-executive directorships on a permanent basis she already had one at least of those roles prior to taking that leave but Mm -hmm. decided that she wanted to pursue that full-time and then I was offered the role on a on a permanent basis right and I mean, that was a time where Suncorp was going through massive change as well, mm. weren't they? they you were know, change of CEO, uh, substantive change in in terms of the overall strategy of the uh, the bank moving forward and its insurance business Absolutely. and so on. Yeah, right. And so um, uh, you were chief risk officer for about uh, eight months or so, yep. and then into a distribution role. Back into a distribution role, yeah. Right. So a new goes back to your point around change. The new CEO appointed for the bank. And there was change as a result of that. So essentially two roles were put together and mm-hmm. made into one role, which was then leading all of the distribution function, which entailed retail banking, business banking, contact center, and also the intermediaries channel. Right. Distribution seems one of these peculiar <laughs> uh, words used in the, uh, the banking industry um, to define you know, a, a very specific type of work. Tell, tell us more about what that means. Well, from my perspective, it was basically a role that led the team that was the customer-facing part of the organisation. So it, it is an interesting word, I agree, but basically it was about about interfacing or engagement, connecting with, with customers. So mm-hmm. I, I had each of the, the teams that in large measure had that direct interface with the customer. So... Often, I guess that role would be termed a, a sales role. Yeah, that's more typically what it would be known as. Yep. But in this particular case, yeah, it was it was the term distribution. Okay. And uh, in that role for about two years. Yep. And then final role at SunCorp, Executive General Manager, Product and Portfolio. Again, you know, uh, from the outside, a bit of an unusual title. What did that <laughs> mean? Well, basically, it was it was looking at the. The, the products on the banking and, and the wealth side. So it looked across both banking and wealth. So it was basically looking at what was the products, were they appealing to customers? Were were they engaging customers? What was our portfolio? Did we have the right portfolio composition? Mm-hmm. Or what did we need to do to optimise that? And it also had a role in terms of pricing. So pricing of deposit products and pricing of, of lending products. Okay. And would it be common that people uh, pursuing a senior executive uh, career in the banking industry would have such dramatic shifts in terms of roles and responsibilities, etc., over the course of their career, or is your situation quite unique? Mine's 
probably a bit different to most, I guess. But having said that, there, there are quite a number of people that would have had similar experience. But mm-hmm. it's wouldn't I wouldn't say it would be typical. Right. Yeah. Okay. Wouldn't say it's typical. And then what led to going and doing the program at INSEAD? Again, it's something that I'd I'd looked at doing for quite some time, and the the issue there was really it was driven by curiosity again on my part around I'd heard a lot about INSEAD. I've spoken mm-hmm. to people that had that had been there, and the attraction for me of the program that I did was it was about looking at how, how do you ensure that you achieve the right balance between performance and progress meaning how do you make sure that your company your institution's performing but at the same time society or the community is progressing simultaneously mm-hmm. so I, I was i was really keen to explore that that concept mm-hmm. and it was really having done that in many respects it's really sparked my curiosity about the mutual sector in particular and, right. and about the, the role it plays in terms of the banking industry mm-hmm. and the economy and the community more generally. Mm-hmm. And was that another residential program? Yes, it was. Yeah. Right. And, and did you complete that whilst still at Suncorp? Or yes, after I did. you left? No, while I was still at Suncorp. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so you mentioned you had a couple of big takeaways from uh, your time at Harvard. What were some of the uh, similar takeaways perhaps at INSEAD? Uh, the, the big one was the need for balance. Okay. So very much a focus on and. You, you can't be one or the other. It's, right. it's got to be both. And just a recognition that to the extent that particularly banking was in a position where it was really flourishing and, and growing rapidly mm-hmm. and achieving really strong profits, mm-hmm. if there wasn't a sense that, that the society in general was also benefiting from that, then that in many respects, just invites intervention. Mm-hmm. So it's it really an awakening around making sure that whilst it's really important to perform well and to record strong profits, it's also really important to take society along with you. Mm-hmm. And so that uh, growing awareness of the mutual environment as compared to NAB and Suncorp where you'd come from, was that largely what motivated you to then exit Suncorp and eventually you know, start this role at Heritage? Yeah, look, certainly the, I'd, I'd been thinking about the mutual industry for, for quite some time and I'd worked for ANZ to start with, then NAB, then Suncorp, so large organisations. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd always, for a long period of time, thought about working for a smaller organisation firstly, but Secondly, I wanted to work for an organisation that was regionally based. I'd, I'd been very fortunate very early in my career, back in, in my ANZ days, where I'd done a, a relieving role for a period of time, okay. which was a relieving role in regional locations in Victoria. Yeah. So I really got a taste for what life was like in mm-hmm. regional locations. And I, I, for a long time, harboured a desire to work in that environment mm-hmm. on a permanent basis. So it was it was really the perfect role for me. So working for a mutual and also in a regional location. Right. You had a few months break between uh, Suncorp and coming into Heritage. Yes, I did. And what sort of things did you do in that time? So took a holiday with my family, firstly, and then secondly, just did some private consulting work. Okay. Yeah. But uh, look, the main emphasis during that period was just having a break with sure. my family and having Having made the decision to to join Heritage and to move, it was then a lot of work around getting the house ready. Right. So we had a house in Brisbane. We had to had to get the house prepared 
for sale, then sold, and right. then moving all that stuff up to uh-huh. Toowoomba. So over the years, I must confess, my wife had done, I would say, wouldn't be an exaggeration to say probably 80 or 90% of the work involved in those moves historically. Right. So yeah. it was my turn to make a contribution. Oh, start. fair enough. And so um, I'm interested, you came into the role of Chief Operating Officer at Heritage. Uh, what was the mandate? You know, welcome to the team. This is what we'd like you to achieve for us. Sure. I mean, Peter and the rest of the team, Peter Locke, were really clear around the desire to, to move from a, a, a physical bank with a digital presence to uh, a digital, digitally led bank with a physical presence. Okay. So continuing to recognise the fundamental role that branches would play in terms of fulfilling customer needs, but recognising that the way in which customers are seeking to interact has changed and changed incredibly quickly and dramatically mm-hmm. as a result of which we need to change. So we need to be looking more around how we can do things digitally. So the, the mandate was very much around come in and th- there's uh, an agenda for change. And is much of that work looking at world's best practices, what other banks internationally are doing and trying to follow their lead or are you breaking new ground as well? Uh, there's a bit of both in there. So you certainly look around and see what others are doing, mm-hmm. but. You've also got to be cognizant of your own environment. It goes back to one of the concepts I spoke about earlier, which was congruence. So Mm -hmm. you've got to cut your own cloth, but certainly you are influenced by what's what's happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, obviously most people listening in would be well familiar with the fact that uh, we used to go into branches and then we got our machine out of money out of ATMs and now uh, you don't handle a lot of cash. In fact, uh, I took my daughter for lunch today and uh, the little sign at the register said cash is not preferred. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> well that, that just tells you, that tells you a lot, doesn't oh, it? Oh, for sure. Um, and so I said to this lady, why would you have that sign? She said, well, because people are buying, I was buying my daughter a, uh, uh, a chocolate brownie yeah, yeah. or something for four bucks. And she said, you know, we people give us $50 and we just don't carry change. So we'd yeah. rather, and uh, you know, a um, pay wave transaction for four yeah. bucks. Yeah. So, you know, that's what's happening now. But if you look into the future, say five or 10 years from now, you know, what are the big changes that we could potentially expect to see come through? Oh, look, I think that there's a lot of focus, particularly on, on big data, which is basically just putting all the data strains together to complete yeah. the picture or the mosaic on customers. So deeper and better understanding of, of customers and customer needs. I think there's also a piece around, you know, I think the potential for blockchain is is significant. So I can see that certainly playing a large role as we move forward. I think artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. will play an increasing role i think robotics will continue to influence what we're doing profoundly Mm -hmm. and i think that you know the smartphones that we all carry around now are very much supercomputers in our pockets and that Mm -hmm. will continue to be the case i think if if anything it'll it'll become even more powerful as Mm -hmm. time goes on so i think all of us we tend to drive our lives now from that that uh, little thing in our pockets. And how will that affect specifically, you know, the retail banking space? I think for such a long period, what we've done has been very manually based, very mm-hmm. paper based. So we, we need to move from that mm-hmm. to a situation where, where things are, are paperless. So, mm-hmm. so we capture information once, it's captured electronically, and then it's routed electronically right through our system in a straight through processing 
basis without a human touching it again. Mm-hmm. So it just gets read electronically, which means that things can be done in a, in a far, far less clunky way. It means things can be done far more quickly and customer needs are, are better satisfied than men. It's interesting. I was talking to uh, the president or the former president of Roads Australia recently and their view about um, private car ownership and the fact that in you know 10 or 15 years, private car ownership may almost be a thing of the yeah, past. absolutely. And then you think, well, most people, younger people, they go to the bank, their first loan is for their car. Yeah. And if they're not buying a yeah, car, yeah. and then, you know, with housing affordability and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the younger generation coming through, having formed in their own mind an opinion, I probably will never own a home. Mm. I mean, that must have massive implications for for banks as well, I imagine. Are you really thinking about, well, how do we, you know, remain relevant and and, uh, an important part of the fabric of society post that, or is that just a little bit too far away, a bit too challenging? that's, That's definitely very much uppermost in our thoughts. So, look, things are changing rapidly, as you said. So car ownership... Will there be car ownership in the future? Not sure. Home affordability, definitely an issue, which, by the way, is one very good reason to live in regional locations, I have to say, because the home affordability is is very different regionally. So, look, I I think it's incumbent upon all of us to to explore and and think about uh, how do we we solve for that issue Mm -hmm. because I... I think it's a really important social issue mm-hmm. that we need to crack. So, And what about, you know, uh, this massive disruption that's happening and you have, you know, your four um, big banks in Australia and I imagine similar uh, environments internationally. I imagine that, you know, this must level the playing field a lot as well. Uh, do you see tremendous opportunity for Heritage to play, you know, a bigger game given that? Yeah, certainly. And we, we've spoken very publicly around the need for for reform particularly from a capital mm-hmm. perspective because uh, go back to one of the conversations we had earlier as a customer owned bank basically our ability to fund ourselves is dependent upon our ability to to generate profits mm-hmm. now that's obviously also the issue in respect of larger banks but they also have the added bonus of being able to go and raise capital, yeah. And you know, we're very keen to ensure that that mutuals are given the same opportunity, so mm-hmm. that mutuals also have the the, the chance to issue capital. Mm-hmm. Now, um, a lot of the purpose of this podcast is for those who are aspiring to be C level of executives in the future to hear from those who've walked the path before them and and uh, learn some lessons. Uh, you know, you've talked about some of the key attributes of your own career and your professional education and, uh, and you know, your orientation uh, so far. But, you know, what if you had to, you know, distill some of your key learnings down which have really uh, assisted you to accelerate your own career, what would they be? Yeah, look, I'll call out a couple. So self-awareness is a really big one. And it certainly took me a long time to become self-aware, but... So incredibly, and I cannot overemphasize, so incredibly important to understand the impact of your own behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that part of that is reinforced very much by reflection. So, so important to have time with yourself mm-hmm. to reflect on things that are, are working well, not working well. Did you pick up signals from people when you were involved in 
conversation and you you may at the time have seen something but you didn't react to it at the time but with the benefit of of that reflection piece you're able to better understand so I think just being really clear about the impact of your behavior as I said and understanding whether the the behavior that that you exhibit is having the impact that you intend so mm-hmm making sure that, that those two things are aligned because often they're not often that you mean one thing and the people hearing it think it's something very different yeah do so you intent use... versus impact mm-hmm. so critically important to understand that mm-hmm. do you use tools like 360 degree feedback definitely yeah right. okay definitely and not so much formal 360 degree feedback but also just asking people for feedback in the moment in terms of this is what I thought I said, but was that your takeaway or did you hear something different? So how could I have sharpened that message up? Which really brings me to the second kind of learning for me. And that's particularly in leadership roles, it's it's so important to to communicate well. So really important to communicate the big picture vision, but you need to be able to break that down into Mm -hmm. what it means for people. So how does my role help to progress that vision mm-hmm. and making it real for people. So that, that's that been a, a big learning for me. And then the other one, or two others I would call that, one was I did have a habit, particularly early on in my career, to be in meetings, chairing meetings, and and I, I would I'd jump in early in a conversation and, and make a statement or, or say something, and that tended to anchor the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned the benefit of just holding back and allowing the conversation to happen around me to make sure that people felt free. And it goes back to that concept of psychological safety, felt free and comfortable to express their view. Mm-hmm. And then the last one was listening to learn. So I can't tell you how many times I was in meetings early on particularly where I, I would listen, but I wasn't listening to learn. So it's listening at a much deeper level. And right. I think it's... Admitting that you don't know all the answers, yeah, and if you approach it with that mindset, then you mm. listen very differently. It's interesting that term "listening to learn." Uh, one of the ways that's kind of been presented to me is when you listen to listen from the perspective that you then need to go and teach that to somebody else. Really changes the way that you pay attention, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a great great way of putting mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And um, I mean, you've had access to you know some of the best professional education in the world, uh, but uh, have you used other things to support you in terms of your introspection so on? Have you had coaches or, you know, do you have a particular frameworks that you refer back to that help you to guide that consideration? Yeah, look, I've been very lucky. I've been married to the same amazing woman for 27 years now and she's been a great coach, guide, mentor, great provider, very direct right. honest feedback. So I've been incredibly fortunate from that perspective. My daughter's also been able to share with me different perspectives, so okay. a bit of reverse mentoring. So right. I've been a, the beneficiary of that. I, I've also had mentors over and above that. I have been a, a massive fan for a long time now of Peter Drucker. I, I yeah. think he's, he was able to express things in, in such a profoundly simple way, but mm-hmm. just to sum things up so beautifully and so powerfully. Mm-hmm. And quite... Um outspoken in terms of his view uh you know he certainly uh took the took the road less traveled didn't he absolutely but i mean you look at things that he he wrote 50 years ago and it's as relevant now as it was then Mm -hmm. well fundamentally i mean human behavior uh 
you know, hasn't changed that much. Uh, we've become more sophisticated and perhaps a little bit more uh, worldly as the world becomes far mm. more available. But fundamentally, you know, a lot of the uh, the way that we interact is, you know, dates back thousands of years, I imagine. Mm. Um, Definitely. Let's look to the future now. I mean, you know, uh, three months into the role at Heritage, um, you know, if you look out towards the sort of the next you know, two to five year horizon. What are the things that you're excited about, firstly for the bank and secondly for your own career? I think in terms of the bank, the, so the bank is, is very much, I hate to use this word, very much on a journey. Right. So we are absolutely all about creating that digitally led bank with a physical presence. And that is a journey that will take probably three to four to five years when mm-hmm. you think about how significant the changes are that, that need to be made. But it will put us in a, in a very different position in terms of how it feels to be a customer and the experience that you have as a customer of Heritage. So I'm really excited about that. And then, I, look, I think professionally, the great joy I get is, is seeing progression of people that I work with and who work for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much driven by legacy, by, by leaving the place in better shape mm-hmm. than, than I found it, in better shape from a, a leadership point of view, from a financial performance point of view, but a culture point of view as well, and a talent perspective. So mm-hmm. that's the thing that excites me, thinking forward five years and thinking about the way the bank will look in five years' time. Do you personally have aspirations to be a CEO at some point in your career? Oh, look, absolutely. I would, I would love to... Love to have a role as a CEO, there's no question about that. Well, uh, it's certainly with the uh, the evolution of your career to date, you certainly picked up lots of different uh, tools for the, the toolbox to get to get you there. Um, is ongoing professional development something that you're keen to uh, to do? I mean, you know, there's, it's hard to think about what's next after Harvard and INSEAD, but have you got your eye on any other programs or things you'd like to learn? I, nothing immediately on the horizon because I, I really just want to make sure that I integrate and embed myself into into heritage. So very much focused on that for the time being. But yeah, look, I think continuous improvement. If if you are extolling the virtues of that for the organisation, it's really important for you, for you to be doing the same yourself. So I, I'm a, I'm a great reader and avid mm-hmm. reader. So I'll certainly continue reading and. Look, I'm sure there's a, a program out there that in the years to come will, mm-hmm. will be a program that, that is really attractive and will work really well for me. So, you know, I've often looked at I've often looked at Wharton, for example, as a, as a great institution, mm-hmm. offers fantastic programs. So a, a Wharton program would be a wonderful opportunity. Great. Now, we've talked a lot about work today, but, uh, you know, to close things out, because I'm sure you've got other things <laughs> to get on with this afternoon, you know, what's uh, Kevin all about when he's not at work? What are the things you like doing? So love going to movies with my family. We, we on average, I think... I'd say we'd go to a movie a week. Right. So we're, we're very avid movie guys. I, I love I love music. I think music's a great way to, I think, put yourself in a different space. Mm-hmm. So. Are you a musician or just? No, 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 definitely <laughs> not a musician. <laughs> sing in the shower. Yeah, a bit of singing in the shower. But right. look, I just think it's a great it, it's a, it's a great vehicle to put yourself in another place. Sure. And I think particularly if if things aren't going so well for you, there's a. Yeah, I think everyone's got a, maybe a go-to song that they go to that, that can get them up. So, so if you've had a pretty terrible day and you're driving home, what do you blast out on the car stereo? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, look, 
I'm a Beatles fan. Okay. So I, I love Beatles, the Stones, right. Coldplay. So okay. it'd, be, it'd be one of those I'd I'd go to. Right. So the uh, the ancient question of Beatles versus the Stones. You mentioned both of them. You know, who who's uh, would you lean towards? Gee, that's a tough choice. It's a very tough question. I, I, I'd be a Beatles man myself. Yeah, I love both, but I think the Beatles had a much broader repertoire, yeah. you know, whereas the Stones pretty much are stuck to their knitting. And yeah. uh, But no, both are amazing yeah. bands. I saw a post, uh, incidentally, yesterday where someone had ranked, the, I think it was 203 Beatles songs from 203 down to number one. Which As I, to which I, they their favourites, yeah, yeah, which I thought was wow, it's a very gutsy undertaking. Was it their own opinion, or did they actually have a poll? No, 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 it was their, it was their own opinion. Oh wow, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's uh, the stuff that big arguments yeah. come from, isn't it? And no, number one, oh, I would right. never pick number one. A day in the life. Oh really? Yeah. Well, that's a great song. And uh, you mentioned you've got a daughter. Yes. Uh, and how old is she? She's 25, she's married, and oh, she right. lives in Melbourne. Okay, right. Yeah. So when you say that you go to the movies, it's you and your wife go? Yeah. Right. Look, we, we certainly see our daughter every second, maybe every third week. Okay. So oh, we're, we're right. down there regularly. Uh-huh. And uh, you're enjoying the lifestyle in Toowoomba? Love it. Absolutely love it. So it, it's that little cooler than Brisbane. I think you get to experience the seasons just as you, you do in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't get the same degree of humidity. So it, it's a wonderful lifestyle. Great community-spirited uh, ethos in Toowoomba. Fantastic. Well, look, before we wrap it up, is there anything else you were hoping to say or anything I haven't asked you that you want to finish the podcast with? No, nothing. I think, again, I'll just stress in terms of the lessons, that the big lesson for me which I would encourage people to focus on is, is that issue of self-awareness mm-hmm. and the impact of behaviour. So, again, thinking about impact versus intent. I think if you can approach interactions with that in mind, I, I feel you're in a much stronger position to, to build great relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, that's excellent and a great way to finish the uh, conversation. Thanks very much and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kevin Potter. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes, and in the meantime, have a fantastic week.